Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with David Auerbach. David is a writer and technologist and software engineer. He previously worked at Google and Microsoft after graduating from Yale University. His writing has appeared in the Times Literary Supplement, MIT Technology Review, The Nation, N Plus One, Tablet, and elsewhere. He teaches the history of computation at the New Center for Research and Practice. And his most recent book is Meganets, How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. And that is the topic of today's conversation. We talk about the growth and the problems of online networks, the trade-offs between liberty and cooperation, the apparent impossibility of getting rid of misinformation, bottom-up versus top-down influences, recent developments in AI, deep fakes, the instability of skepticism when faced with so much misinformation, the future of social media, the weaknesses of large language models, breaking up digital bubbles, online identity and privacy, and other topics. And now I bring you David Arbach. I am here with David Arbach. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Sam. So uh, you've written a, a, an all-too-timely book. That book is Meganets, How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. And um, I, I devoured this book uh, this week, and uh, it really speaks to our current circumstance in a comprehensive way. So I, I just I want to track through your the case you make for um, kind of diagnosing our problem and uh, offering some possible solutions. But uh, before we jump in, perhaps you can just summarize your background because you have a an interesting intellectual history that straddles tech and and the humanities in a in a nice way. So to tell tell people what you've been up to low these many yeah, years. Yeah, I've sort of been all over the place. I, I I mean from a young age I was I, I really loved computers but also but also literature. So I tried to sort of keep a foot in both, but uh, the direction of the times sort of pointed me towards software engineering. And so I did end up working as a software engineer at Microsoft uh, in the around the turn of the century and then Google sort of in their meteoric rise days. And I spent a, a little over 10 years doing software engineering before deciding that it was time to, I don't know, step out and search for another perspective because I'd been looking into literature and philosophy at that time, during that time. And I wanted to see if I could do something that would conjoin those two sides of myself. <laughs> and so I set out on uh, writing and uh, and bringing what I hope is a unique vantage to my opinions on technology, but also society more generally and mm. how technology is affecting it. Uh, I, you know, I, I wrote a tech column for, for Slate for some years, and I was a policy wonk in D.C., which it's a great experience to have. I think that one of the, in our hyper-specialized world, it actually is really good to have hands-on experience in wildly different domains. And mm -hmm. there's nothing like attending graduate classes at the same time as working at Google to make you understand what uh, unquestioned assumptions each culture has. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, so let's jump in. Let's jump in, I guess, starting with the title of your book, 
what is a meganet and how do they commandeer our lives on a daily basis? And actually, I'll add a third question to that is why a new word? Because I think mm. that every neologism needs a justification. Yeah. <laughs> so the official definition is that a meganet is a persisting, evolving, and opaque data network that uh, really does determine how we see the world. And it consists both of the algorithm and AI-driven servers that connect up online life, as well as the hundreds of millions of people that are always connected to it. Both components are, are needed mm. because the computers act as conduits for these people, to, for people and the algorithms to engage in sort of a feedback loop of accelerating content production, distribution. And so it leads to these three properties that I identify, which are um, velocity, volume, and virality. In other words, the size, the speed, uh, and the feedback that it generates, that it keeps compounding on itself. And what I, what I say in the book, Meganets, is that these systems have gotten too fast and too big to be controlled in any sort of fine-grained way. That if we ask a CEO or a corporation, to keep track of every bit of content that's published and squash out the stuff that we don't like for whatever, uh, whatever definition of we don't like you want, that's a non-starter at this point. It's just too fast. Mm. It also make, leads to inevitable viral blow-ups and crises that happen when a certain meme or whatever takes off and by the time you're trying to stamp it out, the horse is already bolted from the barn. And to that last question of why a new word, my experience as a software engineer was that we really underestimated the human component. We saw the systems getting bigger, but I really feel no one foresaw just how much assigning a little bit of control to every single user so that they were influencing the weights and the algorithms, that their data was going into the system and having a little nudge on the servers and the algorithms. That influence collectively was actually a major, major force that couldn't be shaped through algorithmic, technological, or top-down means. And so I coined the term to reflect that it requires both the human and the machine component, and that we ignore either of them at our peril because it's the combination of the two that's led us to where we are, that machines by themselves could not do could not create the world that we exist in today. It's because we're hooked up to them constantly in this feedback loop of reacting and shaping and spreading and forwarding that you are seeing these out-of-control behaviors take place that make these systems feel much more organic and ecological, like the weather more than you know what we think of traditionally as technological networks. Mm. Well, what specific systems are we talking about? I think many people listening to you so far will think that what you're talking about must be limited to social networks, you know, social media companies, like, I guess, including things like YouTube. Yeah. What, what are some examples of meganets? Those are the ones where I think we feel it and we observe it most directly because you know, that's what we interact with on a daily basis. But these systems are actually present at many levels in life. You know, there, there are things that are somewhat adjacent to social networks like online gaming, which has been said to be the core of what's going to become the metaverse if the metaverse is still a thing. But 
the gamification of uh, of reality and online and offline life is proceeding apace. So I think that we should look at that. But also things like cryptocurrency networks, where things get out of control very, very quickly, in some cases by design, but also for reasons that may not immediately be clear even to the people who are using cryptocurrency networks. Beyond that, we also see governments getting into this business. In the West, at least, the integration of government services and identification systems has been a bit uh, slow to happen. But in India, citizen identity has already been centralized around a single identifier called Aadhaar. And Mm. if you look at how it is connecting up the various systems and forms of identity, you know, it's not as though in India you don't have a separate driver's license number and a separate social security number. Everything is tied around the Aadhaar number. And that also produces these sorts of feedback effects because more and more systems get pulled in around that identifier and start reacting to one another. And AI is an interesting case because AI certainly qualifies as a meganet or at least a component of meganet. And one of the things I argue is that a lot of what we see in AI that disturbs us so much is less AI technology per se and more a consequence of these meganet systems that we've already set up and that we can see some of the things that trouble us about AI already happening in the more out of control but less AI influenced systems like, you know, recommendation engines or cryptocurrency networks, for example. So uh, those are some of the things, but I think mm. you could also, you could extend it, you could extend it to more. I, I think that in the economic realm, that's probably where we're going to feel the strongest. We see it the most in the, socio, in the sociological arena online, but this sort of phenomenon happens, in my opinion, whenever you get enough people hooked up to a network in such a way that you get these feedback effects. And that is in no way restricted to social networks. I mean, if you want to instance that combines them, look at the, the GameStop stock mm-hmm. or the stonk, as it was called, where a bunch of Redditors managed to send GameStop soaring in the absence of any change of its fundamentals. And all the institutional investors and the SEC were very annoyed by this, but they couldn't find that it was actually illegal because it wasn't there wasn't any actual collusion going on. What was happening is that it was blowing up like a meme. Mm. And that's the sort of thing where I say it's not necessarily going to stay on social networks because it can, it can spread to the, rest of our, uh, to the rest of our world. I think people will have an intuitive sense of what you mean by virality or velocity, but uh, can you spell out what you mean by feedback in this case? So yeah, f- virality is my V word for feedback. And by feedback, I simply mean that without, you know, before you have had time to look at the result of a system, the system has already incorporated the last iteration of its state Mm. into its next state. In other words, you know, it's like you're never walking into the same river twice, you know, to quote the old Heraclitus. It's the never, you're never walking into the same algorithm or data stream twice. We tend to think of algorithms as fixed things that we can you know, we can tweak or twist a gear on. But actually, our interactions constantly shape those algorithms and change their weights. You're not, if you do a search on Twitter or Facebook or Google, you're not guaranteed to get the same thing a minute later than you got a minute ago. You might, but the very act of you searching has already become a new piece of input into how, into the weights of those algorithms. And that's what I mean by feedback, that you have these effects that are caused, that, that cause certain 
that cause viral portions to amplify and get out of control before anyone has had a chance. It's not as though someone is commandeering this from the top down. Some Mm -hmm. people try to commandeer it, but I actually think it's much harder to do than people think. And that uh, conspiratorial thinking is kind of a comfort because you think, okay, well, all this chaos and misery I'm experiencing wherever is because of... uh, is because uh, Facebook or Microsoft wants me to be miserable. But in actuality, you know, having been on the inside, I don't think any of us were thrilled or expected that our algorithms would come to be so dependent on the actual interactions of users. Okay, so I think we're probably going to focus on the social media component because I think that is, and we'll talk about AI as well, but there's what you describe as you kind of lay out the nature of the problem and and offer some remedies, there's really a a landscape of trade-offs. And and many people are becoming more and more sensitive to to some of these trade-offs. And they're, in some cases, picking one extreme, more or less, uh, you know, to the exclusion of of every other consideration. So I think in the information and, and misinformation space, Many of us now perceive that there's some trade-off between basic sanity and liberty, right? The, the freedom to just say anything at any scale, with any velocity, with any consequences, is in tension with our ability to know what's real in any given moment and to cooperate effectively and to maintain the normal healthy bonds of a an intact society, right? To have a workable politics, it seems to require that we deal with misinformation and, and disinformation in some way. And yet, the so-called free speech absolutists tend to view any attempt to deal with, you know, the basic problem of a, of a shattered epistemology as an Orwellian uh, overreach and, and abridgment of our civil liberties. And what's interesting is many of the people who are most adamant that any attempt to deal with misinformation or disinformation is just code for uh, an infringement of free speech, and in the, the U.S. context, you know, the uh, infringement of the the First Amendment. Many of these same people are have a, have a very different view of the the right to assembly, which is also enshrined in the First Amendment. So the, these are the, some of the same people. I won't name them here, but they will hear themselves referred to, are, have been very focused on, uh, in particular, like the, the, the dysfunction in a city like San Francisco with the, you know, the, all the homelessness and the, the mental illness being played out on the sidewalks and you know, the open-air drug markets. Uh, they, they've been very concerned that we admit that it is an unacceptable negative externality to have people defecating on our sidewalks. And we can't, you can't, tolerate this awful status quo <laughs> under the aegis of, well, this is just freedom of assembly. You know, the, 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 everyone has a right to congregate on the sidewalk. Are you going to abridge that right? What are you, Stalin? But these same people will not address the quite similar concerns about a digital sewer that we're now all living in and having to swim through and the, the digital anarchy that results when we can't have a conversation that converges on basic facts about anything, whether it's a pandemic or whether an election was run appropriately, etc. So I mean, let's start with this trade-off or perceived trade-off between 
understanding our world and being able to speak to one another about consequential issues and the freedom to say anything at any scale. It's interesting because I think a lot of it is affected by the issue of volume, that we live in this world now of informational abundance. And that's very different. We used to live in a world of informational scarcity where there was actually selection pressure and there had to ultimately be only a couple of views that won the day. I don't think that's really true anymore. I think that, and I think you see this, that those efforts to you know, stamp out misinformation that, that some people have uh, tremendous problems with, they aren't all that effective, mm. that you see, these, you see these factions persist no matter what you do to them. And people complain bitterly, but the weird thing is, is that you know, they, don't, they don't seem to have been stamped out all that much except in extremely virulent and perhaps blatantly illegal cases. For all, Facebook gets criticized for censoring stuff or not censoring stuff. I can find pretty vile stuff with very easily on it. Mm. So I think that what we're actually seeing right now is not even much in the way of censorship so much as just hiding it from view and that the rapprochement in the, like, in the tension you describe is going to come from people just pretending that stuff doesn't exist, the, that the bad stuff doesn't exist, which honestly is the traditional way we've, all, we've always done it, uh, that our problem seems to be less with... Um, uh, with with these points of view existing than of us being reminded of them and having them sh- shoved in our face. But well, one, what, the- one point you make at various points in the book is that the companies, I mean, let's say Facebook or YouTube or Twitter as examples, have much less control than their users imagine, right? So that Mark Zuckerberg can't actually stamp out misinformation even if he wanted to yeah. and even if that was even if he could accurately target misinformation as misinformation uh, and not commit his own errors of propagating misinformation in the process even an, an omniscient zuckerberg can't actually affect the censorship change he might want to affect there are only coarse grain mechanisms available you know in the run up to the 2020 election they did ban all political advertising. That can be done. Mm-hmm. But to ban only misinformation, well, that's a relative, well, it's a, A, you have to get people to agree on what misinformation is. That's tricky enough already. B, you need to somehow algorithmically determine whether something is misinformation or not. And that's what I'm saying you're never going to do to enough of a degree that you're going to stamp it out because yeah you know it becomes like fighting censorship china has effectively been trying to do this for for decades and with only mixed success they really do have an army of government censors online and still stuff gets through nonstop. so and you know we don't even want to i i hope a lot of people would would at least agree we don't want to get to china's level even while i think we can also say that Pure anarchy and pure hyper-libertarianism creates an environment that almost nobody wants to exist in. <laughs> yeah, well, I think for me, and I, you know, I could be mistaken about this, but the distinction that has seemed relevant up until this point is, has been encapsulated by somebody's phrase, I forget who coined this, but to say that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. 
right? Which is to say that there's a distinction between the political freedom to say whatever you want, whenever you want, which is enshrined in the First Amendment with, with some specific exceptions, and which you know I, I'm totally happy to defend. I don't think people should be thrown in prison for saying things we don't like, and even in, in most cases saying things that are untrue. But being able to freely speak and write and publish in ordinary channels is not the same thing as being free to have your speech algorithmically boosted because we have built a machine that preferentially amplifies misinformation and disinformation and outrage. And, you know, I mean, this comes back to the original sin or what many people consider to be the original sin of the internet, which is the, the ad-based attention gaming business model. Yeah. You know, if, we, if you break that link between the freedom to say anything and the machinery of amplification, that has been the, the bright line that many of us have been trying to focus on. But it, 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 do you agree with that or is it more complicated than that? I think it is more complicated than that. I mean, I think you're totally right. But I also think that the machinery of amplification is changing in ways that we've only begun to grasp. That, you know, after the 20th, 20th century of top-down general, you know, broadcast media where the overall shape of the narrative, even if there were disagreements within it, was set by uh, a small number of elite players. We're now seeing that that's no longer the case, and you can actually have a bottom-up generation of a narrative, because you've seen narratives that, well, while they may benefit one political party or another, are definitely not created by that political party because they carry certain liabilities with them. I don't know if I should name them or not, but I think you can know what I'm talking about here. And, and it's because of those feedback loops that you no longer need some sort of shepherd or demagogue to start generating start generating an entire narrative landscape that then reinforces itself because you've got, you know, you've got these meganets that are bringing people, like-minded people together and just uh, having them say, yeah, you're right. And what about this? And building up a corpus or a lore or whatever, independent of, of you know, what we think of as traditional so social societal elder influences. And so you know, what is amplification? You know, having been associated, having had served my time in, I guess, vaguely traditional old media, new media elite circles, uh, their power is dissipating. They definitely have less power than they used to. And I, I think that no matter where you are in the spectrum, you tend to think that other people have more power to amplify than you do because I think everybody is seeing their power <laughs> decrease or no one feels that they have enough. So that if you say, see the New York Times dissing your point of view, you take that as a societal disapproval, even though the New York Times is really no longer the paper of record in the way that it was 50 years ago. So I think there's a, there's difficulty even assessing what amplification is and who's getting amplified that we don't generate you know we couldn't generate Harry Belafonte just died he was uh before Michael Jackson he was everybody owned calypso his calypso record i don't i don't think we have the the mass media machinery to generate that sort of unity anymore because there's no selection pressure it's not that one one particular product or narrative has to win. Everybody can mm. win. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point because it's it, pre-internet, if you were going to start something like QAnon or some other cult of conspiracy, you know, it's much, it had to have been much harder to do. It's not that it was impossible, but I mean, you just would have to be, you'd have to physically congregate with people in order to, you'd have to have, you know, a QAnon conference, and then you'd be meeting people in the flesh and seeing all of the, the, <laughs> the, the visual and, and palpable evidence of their crackpottedness, presumably. Right. And and, so, right. You, so you said it. I, yeah. So yeah, it was QAnon that I was talking about. And yeah. Exactly. It's like the QAnon has certainly brought some benefit to the Republican Party, but do I in any way think that, that the traditional Republican elite decided that they wanted QAnon to be a thing? No, I think they would have shaped it very differently had they had the option mm. <laughs> because it carries with it some severe liabilities that they have to deal with. Well, so maybe we should talk, well, let's bring in the AI piece before we talk about remedies here. You know, like almost everyone or probably everyone who wrote a book that talked about AI and published it um, any time earlier than, than last week, uh, I would imagine some of what you say about uh, large language models and deep learning might feel a little dated. Is there anything you would, you would want to modify now, given the, the, um, what's happened with GPT-4? I mean, you mentioned GPT-3 in the book, so you're, you're sort of up to the minute there. But uh, I think you were very skeptical of the, the ability of these large language models to process speech. Uh, effectively, and uh, I mean, are, are they going to be more powerful than than you expected, or or what? What are your thoughts about AI at the moment? Honestly, I stand by what I said a hundred percent. I mm-hmm. think that they have the same the same feelings. They are the equivalent of the old horse, clever Hans, that mm-hmm. uh, was very good at being cued by people and responding in convincing ways but couldn't do, actually do math. My opinion is that these large language models are incredible, and they are incredible at producing content, which I do say in the book. What they are bad at is actually behaving with genuine understanding because they don't have it. So I actually think that I've been, I think it holds up pretty well. <laughs> I will defend it at length, right. actually. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the weirdness that we're seeing also, the fact that these AIs are clearly behaving in ways that weren't intended by their creators. When the, that New York Times author got freaked out mm-hmm. by uh, the, the Microsoft Sydney chatbot yeah, that wanted to release nuclear of, codes. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you look back at it, you can see that he was cueing it. Yeah. Uh, I had someone say, oh, I'd feel so much better if it wrote about world peace. And I said, I can get it to talk about world peace, talking about sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. And why was it so uncanny? It's because it's been seeded, it's been trained on all the collective conscious and unconscious writings of humanity so that when we said oh what would a horrible AI, what would you do if you were a horrible ai it parroted back the exact most common nightmares that humans have right. and then as we write a bunch of stories about it that feeds back into the next iteration of these chatbots and it feeds them back to us so no i think that the the llms are pretty much about where i expect them to be and i do not see them getting past that to a point of achieving what could be called reasoning or true cognition anytime soon, even though they will be able to do other things that are very amazing and very world-changing. Well, do you think the, the net result of these um, language models will be pernicious or benign or 
beneficial in the near term? I mean, like, how would you, are are you optimistic or pessimistic about the the near term effects? I mean, let's leave AGI and singularities and and other uh, concerns aside. Just give me the, your sense of the next six to twelve months with respect to the kinds of problems we've been talking about with meganets. What what will AI do to help or hurt the situation? I actually think that in the next year or so, things will not change that much because it's going to take some time to start deploying these AIs in in increasing numbers of contexts. So in the very short term, I think it'll continue to be a novelty and people will tear their hair out. But it's going to take a couple more years before you start seeing it deployed to um, to generate content, to help people generate content, you know, to work in collaboration with humans, which is, I think, where you will see a big difference. That if you have a human assisting an AI, the human provides the actual reason and the AI provides the frosting, as mm-hmm. it were, that you're going to see. And moreover, you're going to see increasing cases where even if this thing doesn't actually, even if these things don't actually think, people will believe that they think that's where that's where you're going to see the biggest changes is on the human side and again that gets back to my th- my theme that the human aspect of this is just as important as the machine aspect of it that in some ways creating a machine that convinces people that it's thinking is if not as much of an achievement is certainly as big a deal as if you created a, th- a machine that that actually does think and that goes back to, you know, Eliza, which in the 60s was tricking people into thinking that it was an actual therapist that cared about their feelings. Mm. Well, this is the supercharged version of it because it's much better than Eliza, but it's not new for uh, these, you know, Turing tests to supposedly be passed, especially if you really want it to be passed. There was that company, I think that was marketing, you know, virtual girlfriends and boyfriends as chatbots, mm-hmm. and people were got really upset when they shut off the romantic language. Uh, I don't know. Did you write about this? Yeah. I forget the company's name. I, but, I, I did uh, hear about this. Yeah, I forgot the company. Yeah, it, that may again may take another 12 months, but you're going to start seeing this. They're, they're, the human desire for company, for pets, it's like Tamagotchis, that that's going to manifest itself. And the more that we can embody them in one way or another, the better it will be. So even though even though you won't be able to have a conversation with them that feels convincingly human, at least not if you're looking at it skeptically, (laughs) you know, you can still have something that behaves on the order of, say, a pet. And if it's human enough, maybe it's a, maybe you can feel romantically towards it. But but what what distinction, what's the distinction? You'll also see massive downward pressure on uh, content creation, that increasing Mm -hmm. amount, you're already seeing content farm being generated, but it's going to get much easier to generate astroturf or whatever in huge amounts and at the point where you can start generating news articles based on press releases there will the what's already been a downward pressure on content generation will get even lower and that'll spread to video as ai generation of of uh, of, of video and sound gets better as well aren't you expecting the spamification of everything where at a certain point most of the content on the internet will be ai generated whether it's text or video or audio and then We'll have this persistent problem with the not knowing what is in fact real. I mean, when you won't you won't know whether an image is real, you won't know whether a video is real. You'll be you'll be reading news articles that you're pretty sure were written by uh, entirely oh, by AI. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to some extent, that's already true on Twitter. That it's not 
a lot of tweets you can't quite tell, and you're just going to see that that phenomenon grow and grow. That in 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 ten years' time, there's not going to be it's not going to be easy to determine whether a video on site is real or manufactured. And that gets back to what I think you said about judging reality. And I think that what's going to happen is people are going to have different versions of reality because with so much abundance of information out there, you can find stuff to support your version of reality. If you want a reality in which QAnon is true, it's going to become easier and easier to just shore it up. So what do you imagine the effect will be? I, mean, I, I, I imagine many of us will just declare something like epistemological bankruptcy with respect to the internet and want to read old books more of the time. I mean, what, what, how, how do you ima- imagine we deal with, a, with an absolute tsunami of fake and a half-fake or you know, otherwise unreliable uh, information? Well, you know, we, a lot of people believe that there were WMDs in Iraq for quite a while. So people can hold on to their, their, their beliefs quite rigorously, especially if they're in a community of people who agree on them. If it's just you in isolation, I totally can agree declaring them an intellectual bankruptcy. But skepticism is hard to maintain. It's, it takes a lot of effort. And I say this as someone who's predisposed towards it, mm-hmm. <laughs> that the comfort of being around people who think the way that you do. And, you know, when I was, honestly, I probably saw a lot of this in academia because ac- academia is, it, because it's a shrinking environment. Academics are very much in competition with each other. And so the, the sort of enforcement of a certain purity and hothouse removal from the world has gotten larger and larger. But that doesn't make people, as long as there's an incentive for them to keep believing what they're believing, they'll do it. And as long as you're getting social approval for believing those things, I figure you probably will stay online. What I do think will happen is that these, I call them narrative bunkers, you can, it's beyond filter bubbles because it's not just you only see it, it. It's that you are actually in a community of people who are actually reinforcing certain assumptions about the world. You can have disagreements about it, but the assumptions are the same way. In the same way that if you watch, you know, if you watch, say, I don't know, Fox News for a week, even if you disagree with everything you see, you will start to take their narrative frame into mm. you, into account. And that's what's going to happen. You're going to see this divergence and factionalization of narrative frames. And increasingly, you won't even be able to understand what people in other narrative frames are, are saying. I, think, I feel like this already happens to some extent, yeah. that you see people in, you know, in, in sort of the Bay Area tech scene compared to people in, say, the New York media scene or you know, people who complain about San Francisco becoming a living hellhole on Earth. Take your pick. That all, all these people are working with such assumptions about things they have never seen. And perhaps this was always the case to a point, but it's only growing stronger. I was in Seattle a few weeks ago, and I was talking to a couple of people about the, uh, do, you, do you remember when there were like the Seattle protests and the, yeah. they, they, they formed that autonomous zone? Mm-hmm. And just from reading reports online, it was like, according to some people, it was a dystopian wasteland. According to others, it was a return to, 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 to prelapsarian Eden. You know, take your pick. So, <laughs> and I was, a- I was asking some of the people there and I was like, I was like saying, well, you were actually there. What was it like? And I, and I, I was like, if you're not talking to people who are actually there on the ground, there's no pressure to actually r- correct your views that it's too late. It's already in the past. Uh, you can see that on a larger scale with COVID, hmm. you know, I think COVID kind of proved this, that 
they did studies showing that pretty much after people took their initial position on the pandemic, no amount of uh, whatever informational correctives or what or fact checks or whatever would get people to budge because they've already got their narrative bunker established. Whatever you see getting posted by Twitter or YouTube or whatever, that's not going to override the fact that you've got dozens or hundreds or thousands of people who pretty much take it for granted. It's not even up for debate. Take it for granted that, say, vaccines don't work or in a more extreme case, the pandemic, you know, mm. pandemic. And I mean, it goes the other way, too. When I when I saw this, like, oh, 95 percent effectiveness for the vaccine, I was like, oh, yeah, that's going to hold up. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I had people saying that to me, like they're 95 percent effective. And I was like, no, I, maybe for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah, no, I feel like we have, we're already living in this shattered landscape and it's, uh, piecing it back together is just going to get harder and harder given these new developments. But back to I don't think it can be pieced together. I think it's just too big. I think that's the thing is that it's over. Unless, unless you literally get rid of the, these mega nets, as I call them, it's not going to happen because we now have this new ability for spontaneous creation and reinforcement through feed, these feedback mechanisms of the stories that we tell each other about how the world works and why we exist and what we do. And there's no selection pressure on them. So we, we can't come together. We don't even, we're not going to have a, mm. even have a language to come together. So it's like individual consciousness is going to just sort of cease to be in touch with how the world is actually working because the world's just gotten too big. The only thing that could possibly comprehend it would be an AI, but uh, you're sort of begging the question there because first you need an AI that actually understands it, and that's the problem we're uh, faced with in the first place, is that even if an AI did understand it, we would have no way of being sure that it did. Hmm. It's like we've created a digital multiverse. I mean, I'd say so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of amazing, I think, in theory, even if it's scary. It's just, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is, to, is you know, I'm of the age where I was, I actually remember pre-internet world, mm. but I got online at a young enough age to you know, be enculturated into it. How old are you? That, I'm 46. Mm. And I think that that generation... It's weird because, yeah, you're never going to see that again. You're never going, people aren't going to have a time when they weren't connected up to the whole world or remember just how different it was. That's what you would need to get back to, to basically say like, okay, look, I've got my own little circle of my local culture and everything else I know I learned through the three networks and a couple newspapers. That's what you need for that sort of coherency. I I don't think you can possibly get it back otherwise. And I think it held on until, until enough people were on social media. But once you passed a certain threshold, once a tipping point, then the feedback effects got, a, got ahead of us. And now the horse is out of the barn. Yeah, well, I, um, you know, I'm 10 years older than you, so I, I have a, probably a greater memory of what it was like before the internet. And I, and I still know a lot of people who are not on social media, or at least not on to a degree that really you know, shapes their worldview. So that's, um, and it's, you know, having recently come off myself, I, I deleted my Twitter account after many years of, of uh, suffering the consequences of being essentially too online. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. And, uh, you know, I, so, so the change there has been amazing, but it, it, it's interesting to look back and notice the, 
distance between me and the people in my life who who were never on Twitter and just didn't understand what I was doing there. There is still uh, that part of culture that just never got completely sucked in to social media, although perhaps it's... it's uh, I think it's being indirectly influenced, you know, in the same yeah. way that Facebook has profiles on people who've never so much as even gone to the site, just in mm. case they do someday. So, and, and, you know, in India, for example, you know, you have to have that Adhar number. So the, the voluntary aspect of it, I think, is declining. And by thinking of it just as social media, yeah. it does make you think like, well, there's still a chance to opt out of it. I don't think there is, though. I think it's going to take different forms. And honestly, I think the current social media format is going to decline a bit and be replaced with something else, maybe something more game-like, maybe something where there's more opportunity to market what you like to other people. I don't know. Mm. I want to re- return for a second to your uh, your skepticism about large language models. So you, you are saying that they are not capable of thinking and reasoning. and uh, In the human sense, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, so I understand that they, they, they're certainly not implementing the information processing that is appearing to be intelligent or you know, is functioning as, as intelligence in the same way that, that human brains do. But in the limit, you know, as their error rate decreases, presumably we're, we're, you know, they're gonna, they'll hallucinate less, they'll make fewer and fewer errors. In the presence of a chatbot that is simply not making errors, how are you going to detect its failure of reasoning? Yeah, it's not about errors per se. Uh, that's the thing, is that in terms of content generation, you're okay. It's when you start asking it to explain and elaborate and construct a coherent worldview narrative, or at least act in such a way that it has a coherent worldview, that's when mm. you get into trouble. And I, I've, I've tested this out. I, I will go through. It can make up a joke. Sometimes the joke is funny. Ask it to explain the joke. It's usually a disaster. You can get it. You can still get it very quickly to claim that two plus two is five. You can get it to claim that five is prime and not prime in the same in the same sentence. And what I'm when I when I cite these things, they're less that errors than they are consequences of the AI approaches being deployed. That when you're basing this on neural networks, deep learning neural networks. Uh, you don't have, it's not as, you can't peek in and see sort of the, the, any sort of structure of its thinking. Now, that's just like the human brain as well, but we don't understand how the human brain manages that either. <laughs> and so that's a great mystery. So that's not to say that they couldn't get there, but I don't think they're anywhere close. And I think Jan LeCun came out recently and said the exact same thing. Uh, he, he gave a presentation, I think at NYU, where he basically said that, look, you're reliant in the LLMs on it continually not making an error in the technical sense, like it's selecting the right token. And the problem is, is that the second it makes one mistake, it's going to continue to veer off. So even if you look at it in a purely statistical way, Mm. you're not going to get there. I would say that that is true. And in fact, and in fact, it's because you aren't. You need the thinking component of it. You're as lo, you're not going to get a zero percent error rate because there's just too many. There's just too many options. You might be able to get it in a very restricted context. So AIs can crush chess and go because you've defined the landscape very clearly. AIs could probably be pretty good customer service agents. They can probably substitute in very very regimented contexts. You know, writing legal beefs, maybe answering questions, but. Again, these these are things in which 
Already, customer service agents are reading off of scripts, so it shouldn't surprise us that that can be automated and made human-seeming. But as far, I, I think it goes well beyond the error rate because I can't think of any case in which I haven't been able to trip up an AI by asking it to elaborate repeatedly. That mm. If you can interrogate it, you can usually get it to behave in ways that no human would ever act, even even ignorant and dumb humans, because it will behave in ways it will start to contradict itself or not make sense in ways that humans don't. Right, right. Well, I mean, ironically, it, it's already passing the Turing test, but it's then failing the Turing test because it passes so well in certain cases, <laughs> right? Like there's, just, there's no human who can answer these questions this accurately, this fast within, within certain purviews. And then, as you say, there's no human that makes these specific sorts of errors, especially the, you know, the, the math errors, or if you ask it, like, you know, what, what, what is today's date? And it gets it wrong, and you say it's wrong, and then it gets it right on the third attempt, and you say, well, why didn't you get it right on the first attempt? It, like, there's no sense of, of accounting for its own failings. Well, yeah, it, it just well, apologizes. It doesn't, it doesn't have that sort of state. Yeah. You know, it doesn't build up that, that state in that way. It's not making semantic memories. Right. And that was why, and that was honestly, that was one of the reasons why machine learning approaches took a, were not popular in AI circles for very long. People were focused on knowledge representation models in the 60s and 70s. And those failed because we couldn't figure out how to represent, you know, the world in logical terms, much less how to actually input it into a computer. So that's the thing is that at this point, those we've gotten much better results from non-symbolic approaches. And I could go on about AI for a while here. But the problem is that we're, we are running up against the limitations that the symbolic AI people, for all their errors, <laughs> warned us about, which is that, which is that you're, you're treating this as a, as a hyper black box. And you're also relying on it having been fed with all this data that we've created, that it really is yeah. acting as a mirror of what we put into it. It's just synthesizing what we put into it. You know, if you could, you're not going to get AlphaGo Zero. Yeah, you aren't going to get a machine. You, you can get a deep learning network that teaches itself to play Go because you just input the rules. If you can get me a deep learning network that can teach itself to be ChatGPT, then I'll say you've got something. Mm. But I believe that that's impossible. Okay, so let's pivot to your proffered remedies, which um, I must say, you know, on, on their face will seem sinister to many ears, right? I mean, that's like even acknowledging that we have a problem with misinformation and disinformation and, and lack of cooperation already sounds, you know, like the an Orwellian, you know, pandemic well, sort it, of approach. You know, let me, let me use this to actually to, to point out a little booster of my point, which is I've had interviews where people were, were completely coming from the opposite point of view and saying like, why can't we have more of a regulatory mechanism right. that whatever you said was, whatever you say is Orwellian, it was like, oh, I was definitely not going far enough. And I think it gets back to um, this idea that people have completely different narrative frames. And I've spoken to people, a lot of them academics, again, that, that sort of still have the idea that some sort of top-down regulatory regime really can rein all this stuff in. And well, well, let me just give you my, my the priors that, that I'm working from and my, my assumptions, sort of. Uh, there you know, go. My, exactly. My theory, my theory your of mind. Of the, your yeah. use of the word prior is, I know what you mean. I know a lot of people would have no idea what you right. mean. Yeah. <laughs> and yet yeah. it's enough of a common parlance that a very popular podcast. It's a tell, yeah. It. Yeah, it's, it's it really tell. is. It's a, it's, a yeah. it's a Bayesian tell. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was why I named my first book Bitwise because I was like, okay, anyone who actually knows programming is going to get that I must know what I'm talking about if I named it Bitwise. Um, well, so my assumption is that um, most people listening to this podcast imagine that the remedy for bad speech or erroneous speech or divisive speech is, in the general case, simply more speech, better speech, wiser speech. You know, the sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? So the, the, the remedy is, is never or it certainly is rarely to silence people. And um, insofar as I've you know, trespassed against that assumption in some of my commentary, I've received a fair amount of pain from my audience. I mean, so when I, when I celebrate the defenestration of somebody like Alex Jones, or you know, I urged Jack Dorsey to kick Trump off of Twitter long before he actually did that, that seemed to be in violation of this basic principle. And you know, I have you know, a fairly long argument as to why it's not, at least in my mind. But in any case, there is this bias that it's just what we have to do is just let everyone talk, and in the end, the the sane, well-intentioned people will converge and and certainly, hopefully, dominate the conversation uh, successfully. And the the unreliable voices will, um, you know, on the basis of the very selection pressures uh, that y- you have just said are, are you know no longer so operative. Right. That <laughs> uh, they will they will disappear. Uh, and become less and less effective. So it's against that assumption that some of what you're recommending we do is going to seem hatched in a CCP, uh, you know, lab. Yikes. So really, yeah. So, but, but anyway, okay, give us give us <laughs> your remedies. That bad, huh? I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I think I, for start, just to to respond to what you just said, you know, there isn't a conversation. There's innumerable conversations there's um it again gets back to abundance versus scarcity uh, you know i don't spend too much time thinking uh, you know in a case like trump that that is a special case there are definitely singular cases where there's an outsized influence but overall uh, you know one person one thing here or there being kicked off of a platform i don't think makes anywhere near as much difference as it would have hmm. 20 years ago and you know at that time such ostracizations were Ostracization is a societal uh, perennial. It's always it's it's always been with us. It just it always happens silently. You wouldn't know. You know, people wouldn't find out that oh, you've been canceled. Cancellation is not a new phenomenon. The cancellation being done in public is a new phenomenon. <laughs> mm-hmm. But ironically, I think that actually shows the weakness of those positions. You know, there was a. I think I mentioned this in the book. There was like there's a op-ed in foreign policy some years ago, it was like, it's time for the elites to rise up against the ignorant masses. And all I could think was, you know, if you have to publish that article, you've already lost. That's the whole point, is that elites don't talk about crushing the ignorant masses in, mm. in, public, <laughs> in public affairs. They don't publish op-eds about it. So, you know, from that perspective, I feel like you, know, you can always have more speech. There's always a place to push it. So it gets back to what you were saying, is that the question is, who gets the attention, and how is that attention doled out? And that's a much trickier business. And I think I would argue that I don't necessarily think that Twitter or Facebook should have that control. The question is, who should? Ideally, well, ideally, I suppose no one should, but that control is there, so someone's got to. And that's going to have to be a societal 
discussion. I don't know how you're going to, because no one is going to be happy with how it works out. I don't think Facebook is particularly happy having that authority. They want to make money, but I don't think they actually like having the responsibility to adjudicate between what should and shouldn't be published on their platforms. I think they'd be happy to be rid of it. Certainly at Google, I don't think, when I was at Google, I was like, that was about the last thing we wanted to get involved in. Even the people involved in ranking, you know, because you're ex that's effectively a form of, of selection and promotion. Mm. What search results get returned for a certain query. Uh, that was a miserable position to be in because how can you even figure out what people want? Uh, how can you even figure out what qualifies as a good search result? Sometimes it's obvious, but it's fundamentally a subjective human judged thing, which is why I worked in systems because, you know, either it works or it doesn't. So my solutions, well, my starting point was saying, given that I think that the, the, the hyper libertarian position is a non-starter, that if there was truly an appetite for absolutist free speech positions, then absolutist free speech environments would be flourishing on the internet, since they certainly could flourish, but they're not. So you're talking about like 4chan and 8chan and... Even they're, even they ban plenty of stuff too. I know Gab bans pornography, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what is, what, what can you tell me what's an absolutist free speech place? No, I, I, I'm not sure of any. I, I don't frequent any of them. I, mean, I don't think I've ever been on 4chan or 8chan, but I'm just imagining they're as close as you get, but maybe there's something. I, I know that I've, I've heard a rumor that at least 4chan has a terms of service, but, um, and I thought 8chan was invented so as to be even more liberal or uh, more uh, offensive than uh, f it was possible on 4chan. I mean, I, yeah, but I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, the, these sites, well, people aren't flocking to them, right? So, no. and, but they still exist and it doesn't, and if anything, they act as containment zones. I think they actually are called that containment zones or containment buffers that for that section of the populace who are really want to behave in, I don't know, antisocial ways, they go there, right? I don't know. You know, BuzzFeed fun funded 4chan. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. That was a dirty little secret uh, that no one likes to talk about. There was definitely a time when it was seen as uh, as a as a cultivator of um, of internet culture before sort of I guess the the tides well, well, turned. I, I think I remember I, one of the TED conferences I was at. I think the the person who started 4chan gave a a TED talk. I think so. I, there was a moment where 4chan was within the. Yeah, you know, yeah. well within the Overton window of oh yeah, very much so. tech success stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was consulting with with Buzzfeed. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. a while. Uh, so that's the thing is that certainly for a time it was seen as viable. But what it gets back to is that what you're arguing about is not okay. Should there be more speech? But should certain elite organizations have what should they put up with or not? But if you look at Twitter over the last year, you can see that it's losing traction for a lot of reasons, but that I think that you are seeing this centrifugal force that's pulling away any sort of centralized, um, any sort of centralized polis or, or commons, mm. because people are just going to where they'll be happy. And so, you know, the, the recommendations I have are to take as a start that given any particular environment, there's going to be some controls on it. And you can't just hope for the bad stuff to evaporate or go away because of these mega net like feedback effects that I talk about. So what you can do is you put in place 
let non-targeted ways to soften feedback so that you aren't censoring anyone, but you're effectively encouraging heterogeneity and diversity. In other words, people tend recommendation engines, algorithms, what are they designed to do? They're designed to give people what algorithms think they want, which is usually more of the same. That's often not a great thing. But that was the easy answer because companies don't want to say, oh, we're going to give people accurate information. That's way too high a hill to climb, even though they're being asked to do that now. No, it's just, oh, we're just giving people what they want. Well, giving people what they want is also a bad thing, as it turns out. So the question is, what do you put in place with it? Well, uh, when TikTok was getting flack for, for showing lots and lots of pro-anorexia videos to teen girls, uh, they put in a... I guess a, a, a de-recommendation filter where basically it would not recommend similar content quite as uh, vociferously as it previously did. And that's the sort of mechanism that I'm arguing for. And I hope that doesn't sound Orwellian, that what we're saying is, okay, well, shake up the data and do not target people so much with what they seem to like, because that is what contributes to this balkanization mm -hmm. and mutual incomprehension. Now, I, there, the, the stronger mechanism include also saying don't let one per, don't, try to deprioritize people who have too much of a voice. In other words, instead of creating positive feedback that builds on it, try to create negative feedback that any sort of right. big bump in the system gets, tends to get smoothed out. And the reason I suggest systems like mechanisms like this is actually to avoid harsher mechanisms that I think we're seeing a much bigger push for much more control of content. You know, Louisiana wants to ban online porn or something like that. Did you see that France is now suing porn sites or whatever to try to... No. They're, they're trying to pass some law to like... Uh, age limit related. I mean, it, nothing's going to happen from it, but, it, but I guess the, the free speech absolutists, I will say, I think are missing the forest for the trees because unless online life can be... You, you need to make it a little less miserable for you know, the normies uh, or whatever you want to call them. Otherwise, because they outnumber you. So they're going to win mm. eventually. Uh, it might take some time, but they are, they are going to win. And so this, the suggestions I'm trying to make are ones that uh, are geared towards perhaps, uh, you know, having people take turns in terms of what they can say or exposing people to new points of view that are taken from random places, even if those views are misinformational, because I think that trying to get in the business of distinguishing information from disinformation, except in very specific cases, is very, very difficult. And I don't mm. think AIs are going to be able to do it anymore time soon. And I don't think there are enough humans on the earth to do it either. You know, the CCP can't do it. One of the things I learned in researching the book was that a lot of the Chinese Communist Party's mechanisms are built up to be more than they actually are. Like the social credit system is said to be something that, you know, monitors what you do in everyday life and, you know, sees how good a citizen you are. In practice, it's mostly used against people who actually have a conviction against them. But I think the CCP is fine with it um, being thought of as more than that because it keeps people in line. But I think the CCP also, they, they already have trouble with abuses of power and people getting blacklisted incorrectly and because mm. the ccp doesn't have the excuse of saying oh that's just private enterprise which is something that uh, india has done with adhar's defects the ccp actually has been a little more cautious about deploying these sorts of things because the blame does accrue to them which is mm. sort of ironic when you think about it
Yeah, so, uh, but didn't you also suggest effectively breaking up digital groups in a way? Or break, Well, when I say break up, what I mean is, yeah, that basically inject foreign elements into them. Mm. Make sure people that, make sure that people see more than just the people that are in their, that are, that are in their click or narrative bubble. Right. When I say break up, I don't mean prevent association. That's not what I mean. But uh, you're, just, you're just reducing the homogeneity, and- right? Reduce the homogeneity. Yeah. yeah, you know, there's Facebook already did something more severe than this, and I think that I don't think they got too much flack for this. They limited people. They in the run up to the 2020 election, you could not forward a link to more than five people at a time. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly prevents the fan out problem, doesn't it? And I take these things as admission, Facebook basically patent admissions that Facebook can't do better than that, <laughs> that we certainly are going to be able to tell which links are good and which ones are not. We're just going to stop you from being able to forward things around so quickly because that's, that, that'll at least cut it out. So I think there's at least some evidence for these mechanisms actually having some, you know, you, you can't control these mechanisms systems, but you can tame them a little by simply slowing them down or arresting the degree of fan out and feedback that they have. And I think that being forced to ta- stand in line to take your turn to speak is, doesn't, is a much better version of, I guess, restricting, quote unquote, people's speech than actually banning things. What would that actually look like? Just what, what, what's the uh, user experience of having to take turns? I think there would need to be some, exper- uh, some, some experimentation. One could be, oh, hey, you know, you want to tweet this? Can, it's not going to be broadcast out for 10 minutes. So that you're going to, you're not Mm -hmm. going, so that the people who yell back at you and scream, you're an idiot, you're not going to, you know, be checking your phone every second because, uh, and so that you can then yell back at them and cause a huge blowout. Or it could take the form of, okay, you have, of some sort of, you know, token counter mechanism where they say, look, everything you tweet past a certain point is going to remain deranked for a certain amount of time before it gets Mm re-ranked because you have said enough and other people get to take their turn now. You know, maybe this is because I have two grade school kids, but this this mechanism does seem to be necessary in some Mm -hmm. schoolroom classes (laughs) where you aren't, you know, basically the loud mouths are perfectly capable of shutting everyone down if 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 there's no checks placed on them. So um what what role does anonymity play here and and what do you think about a system like the Indian one, the the Adar system. I mean, again, <laughs> most people who will not have heard of it. They they will have heard of the, yeah. the, the CCP's social credit score. But you know, the, the Indian system, uh, in some ways, even though it was technically voluntary, <laughs> you know, really wasn't. Once there's enough of a right. of a convergence on it, and it just becomes practically well, you uh, can't get a cell phone. Yeah, you just it can't now, function example, without yeah. it. So a, a single number or uh, presumably that that identifies you for all intents and purposes in society uh, that is not you know fakeable this this is your you know your digital id that go follows you everywhere uh, and to which your the traces of your reputation presumably yeah. continue to adhere you know, that on its face is just going to be the antithesis of of what many probably most civil libertarians imagine they want out of life. And this is, it's going to seem like some kind of, in some ways, synonymous with some kind of dystopia, or at least a dystopia in the making. And yet, anonymity is also part of this larger problem we've been talking about, where people don't have any burden of ethical citizenship online because they're 
they're faceless uh, sociopaths or mm-hmm. behaving like faceless sociopaths. Well, you know, in the context of uh, you know cyber a- anonymity, what do you think about this being identified online till the end of time? Is that where it's all headed? And if it, if it is headed we're already, there, is we're it, already there. So is it, is there a benign version of that, or is that just also bad? I don't think it's great. I'm not a fan of it. I don't like, you know, I'm a big fan of privacy. I was writing about, you know, micro-targeting long before anyone else was, <laughs> was, compl- was, was, was caring about it like 10, 15 years ago. But at a certain point, I don't know how you avoid it. You know, you can have, you can have play zones, you know, ludic zones where you can be as much of a jerk as you want. I can go on some online game and beat the crap out of people. but I think there's going to increasingly be just this sense that in quote-unquote real-life contexts online, because real online and offline are going to increasingly bleed together, you don't have any more privacy than you would, say, walking down the street. Mm-hmm. I, I, just, I don't see how you avoid that. I don't think I'm thrilled with it. I just don't, I just don't see how you avoid it. In, and for the same reason, I don't see how you avoid a gener- general coalescence of online identity, because at a certain point, the inefficiencies and inconveniences of having a bazillion online identifiers are going to create this pressure to try to solidify around some sort of cross-platform identifier, a la Adhar. Other companies or other countries are already starting to implement it. And honestly, I don't, I don't see how you get around that either. And this is the world we've already been headed towards for a long time, you know, and people weren't complaining about it when, I mean, using a credit card, that mm. already is something that helps organize and track your behavior and people take it for granted. I imagine the same thing will happen with with whatever more cross-platform identifiers tend to emerge. Yeah. Mm. I but I'm not happy about that. This is just me, me sort of saying, let's not put our heads in the sand. This is the world we've created. Are you familiar with Jaron Lanier's argument about the the value of people's data and the fact that people should be the, the true owners of their data and compensated for the, the use to which their data gets put online. Do you know that argument? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is there any daylight in that direction to be found? <sighs> yeah, um, not a lot. Some, I think. Uh, one of the other suggestions I make is intentionally poisoning data stores mm-hmm. so that third-party data on people becomes less reliable. Not that it's especially reliable now, but if you could make it more unreliable, you would actually start to need to check with people to verify that what you have on them is correct. Mm -hmm. And that would open the door for some sort of consent on the order or or even recompense Mm -hmm. in what Lanier says. I'm not inclined to think it'll make that much of a difference, though. I I feel like it may just be a cosmetic change on the order of, like, accept all cookies. You know, right. okay. Right. I, I mean, I, I, I really don't believe that those cookie no, they're just, buttons they're just really a make huge that, hassle. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing is that I think we're yeah. going to see a lot of band aids put on and a lot of like cosmetic fig leaves. And I think that I mean, it's great if you compensate people for their data, but I don't see it as changing the fundamental nature of these networks or preventing this data from being accumulated. Partly because all this data has already been accumulated. <laughs> that's the other mm-hmm. thing is that. Bizarrely, it's sort of an it's an, a bit of analogous to the gun control debate, which is that okay, even if you were to ban all gun sales tomorrow, there's too many guns out there anymore. What are you going to do with that? So. Right. <laughs> so, are there any topics we haven't touched that you think are relevant to touch now? 
Madhyamaka. Yeah. <laughs> I studied yeah. I studied Buddhism uh, yeah. when I was younger, nice. and it actually it was a very big influence on my uh, my thinking. And it's funny because the concept of uh, dependent origination, in particular, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think, um, really spurred me towards seeing just how contingent so many and 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 interdependent these mm-hmm. systems are. So. I, I thought you might appreciate the, that, yeah. that that has been a, a subtle influence on uh, on how I conceptualize these, along with cybernetics. But, oh, that's great. Uh, but Madhyamaka as well. Uh, I didn't. I don't think I thanked Nagarjuna in the book because I thought that would be really pretentious. Uh-huh. But uh, you got uh, but, the fusion of uh, Nagarjuna and Norbert Wiener. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much. That's, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, you could do worse as uh, for influences there. I, yeah, oh, yes, indeed. I mean, I think, you know, another solution is to read widely and read stuff by dead people, even mm-hmm. though there's not much incentive to because seeing how people dealt with very, very different contexts is extremely illuminating. And yeah. so... You know, Norbert Wiener, uh, you can, uh, cybernetics is like all over what I say here, even though I didn't conceptualize it in those terms. Mm-hmm. And that, but it also relates to, it does relate to those Buddhist concepts too, because the, the idea, the anti-essentialist notion, right. you know, that we have such an, a tendency to be essential about, well, you name it, you know, we, to just see the world in such essential terms. And honestly, I've never thought that getting away from that led me anywhere but into a slightly less inaccurate perception Mm -hmm. of how things work, Mm. you know? Well, it's a fascinating set of topics, and uh, I think it's pretty clear the problem is not going away, so let's, well, we will revisit it. Well, whether we're six months out or 12 months out or two years out, at some point, there'll be much more to say on our present circumstance, and um, I look forward to having that conversation with you. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. (laughs) 